This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson vill jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Yes! Thank you everybody for tuning in to a special holiday episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys who at one point owned Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. I'm your host, Elon Dubrovsky, with me as always, Brian Calm. Hello, Elon. Hello, everybody. A special holiday episode, only in that it happens right after the holidays. It's Boxing Day in Canada. Hope everybody won their boxing matches today. Uh, but we have some great fantasy hockey news to get to, even with the recent lull. Yeah, I guess the only thing that matters when I say it's a holiday episode, we're not actually going to do anything holiday-like, except for only have five days to report on instead of seven for games. There's no games on tonight. What a bummer. We're trying to do a fantasy hockey podcast here. Usually I have so much fun watching the scores come in and see how we're already getting things wrong. But here, nothing that I wrote this morning has changed. I know all of our data will be correct. And by the way, Brian, before we move forward, a place where you always find correct data is dauberhockey.com they are the best fantasy hockey website out there no question you go to their player profiles you can just see all the data you want about a player their current line mates their stats from the last few games you know their advanced stats everything you need you've got daily ramblings you've got starting goalies and line combinations you can see the line combinations during the game which is very important to me. I actually noticed that Ricard Raquel was moved off of the top line for a bit in the last game, and I was a little bit concerned. Anyway, let's not go down that road. DauberHockey.com, it's great. And especially now, with the World Juniors happening, you're wondering, who is this guy? Who's that guy? Dauber Prospects has all the info to answer those kinds of questions for you. You better believe there will be some good content there throughout the tournament. So DauberHockey.com for your big league fantasy news and Dauber Prospects for your future fantasy news. Yeah, and definitely if you're interested in prospects and you haven't gone back and checked it out, I did an interview last week with Cam Robinson, a writer for Dauber Hockey that writes about prospects. I guess he doesn't write about prospects. I don't know, he writes about a bunch of things. Anyways, it was a really fun interview, and he talked about some of the players that you'll be seeing at these World Junior Championships. We're not going to be talking about that today. We're talking about the big boys. We're going to be talking about everything that happened in the past week in fantasy hockey. And let's start with the first fantasy hockey headline of the week, which is, of course injuries in fact two big goalie injuries happened in the same game which were obviously not great for the teams involved though one of them maybe let's start with tampa bay and ben bishop he's expected to miss three to four weeks with a lower body injury christers gudlevskis has been called up but obviously the net will now belong to andre vasilevsky while bishop is out and you know what i'm saying it might not be that bad because bishop has not been that great like i'd imagine 
Bishop owners in fantasy, they kind of get some relief from a really disappointing season so far. He has only a 907 save percentage, only nine wins in 22 games played. Now you can stash him in your IR, maybe ride some goalie off a free agency that you've been interested in trying out, but you didn't have room for him. You couldn't justify dropping Bishop. Now's your chance to stash Bishop for a bit. We'll see what happens on the Lightning, though, because Vasilevsky hasn't been that great lately either. Like He started really hot, but he's been so weak lately as well. He has an 876 save percentage over the last month. That's eight games. Last eight games, 876 save percentage. Just brutal. Only two wins in that span. In fact, he got pulled after letting in four goals on Friday, and Gudlevsky's played the last half of third period and made three saves. No goals again. So a 100 percent save percentage not too bad but obviously only three saves so common sense says that vasilevsky is a must add if he's available in your league but at the same time how valuable is a sub 900 save percentage goalie on a struggling lightning team who's currently missing their top two scorers in stamkos and kucherov yeah this is actually good news i think for bishop owners you've sort of framed it as maybe for tampa but for people who own ben bishop in their fantasy leagues now You can stash him away on IR and maybe hope to do something a little more useful with his roster spot because he has not been helping you a whole lot and not even been starting every game that you might have hoped he would have started. Something is weird on the whole in Tampa, and we've touched on it before this year. Their bottom half team in score adjusted shot attempts for percentage when last year they were just outside the top five. And that's how what's commonly referred to as the possession battle driving play. They're on the wrong side of it this year. Their scoring has been inconsistent. Their goaltending has been inconsistent. Both goalies have really let them down. Tampa's even strength expected goals against should suggest that they'll give up, I don't know, fewer goals than two-thirds of the league, but they've actually given up the 13th most goals against per game at even strength. Their bottom 10 in save percentage, which contributes to that. Last year, they were top 10 in save percentage. So a lot of different things happening in Tampa. And that all means that owning the Tampa goalie is not the primo ticket to wins and goalie categories that it was last year. From this point forward, Vasilevsky has to be the guy both right now and, you know, going forward into post-Bishop times. This is a good opportunity for him if he can step in and play consistently well in the absence of Bishop and give the Lightning no reason to go back to Bishop getting two out of three and say, hey, Andre, you're going to get two out of three from this point on. So that would be a point of nervousness for Bishop owners. But like you were saying, Elon, his goaltending has not been very strong. We'll see. I feel like some teams that were struggling, and we're going to get to one in particular later in the show, some teams that were struggling going into the break, feel like this three-day rest could have brought some nice things. And maybe that'll apply to the Tampa Bay goalies and defense, although there are definitely, again, definitely bigger issues at play. And Elon, you mentioned, also hampered on top of those issues by losing so many star players to injury. Yeah, I said that Stamkos and Kucherov are out. Also, Druin got injured in Friday's game. We don't know if he'll be out for a while, but he had been doing so well, so that would be a real bummer if he's out long-term. Palat is still out. Callahan, Nemesnikov, Paquette all out as well. I'm looking at their lines from the last game, and Druin was still there, but like guys getting power play time included Richard Tanner, or is it Tanner Richard? I don't know, but like people I've never even heard of. I, I feel like there's some people, maybe like Alex Killorn, who was good at one point at the beginning of the year, and then we sort of have forgotten about him like we do every year. Maybe he's going to get an increased role. Who knows, though, if they'll be able to score enough goals to make him fantasy relevant. Like we talked about Corey Conacher. I think he got sent down, actually. And then Brian Boyle, Braden Point. Like it is not good right now to own Tampa Bay players. Hedman has obviously been amazing. But anyway, so Brian, you said that obviously you have to ride Vasilevsky now. Like is Tampa Bay going to 
to ride him? Like, is there any chance that if he keeps on playing as badly as he's been doing, that Tampa would go to Gudlevsky's? Like, kind of can you give a quick sense of who is that guy? And is there any chance that he could get some games in? And maybe does he have any value in like a deep league? No, I don't think Gudlevsky's is going to take any significant starts away from Vasilevsky. Maybe one out of every four if Vasilevsky is playing subpar. But they don't have anything better in Gudlevsky's. He's been essentially a career minor leaguer. And in his cups of coffee in the NHL, uh, he's never, A, gotten playing time, or B, you know, done a whole lot. Although, I guess he is a 959 save percentage guy in three NHL appearances. Uh, However, I don't think that's indicative of his long-term value. I'd see this as a really good chance for Tampa to have Vasilevsky in there, write out whatever problems they have with him in the net, and then start to see what their team could look like in future years without Bishop. Yeah, well, in my interview with Cam, he was talking about Vasilevsky as one of the top goalies you want in one of these deep prospect leagues. Or I guess he's not in a prospect league. What do you call it? It's a dynasty league where you draft players that you're expecting to play well in like three years from now. He said that it was Matt Murray, number one, and then Vasilevsky, number two, basically, for goalies that you'd want right now. So we'll have to see if he can ride this out and maybe get better. Like, like I said, an 876 percentage over the past month. So you're right. Obviously, it should be his net. But if he keeps struggling like that, maybe you could grab Gudlevsky's for a you know, spot start and then see how he does. But I agree with you, Brian. Like he's had chances before. There's been times when Bishop was injured before and Vasilevsky just got all the games and he played well. So hopefully he can do it. All right. So I guess my question, Brian, is would you rather have Vasilevsky or the next struggling goalie who's now going to be seeing a lot more time in Peter Morazic? Because Jimmy Howard got injured in that same game. He's going to miss four to six weeks with a sprained MCL. And it's such a downer, right? Like Jimmy Howard has been having such a resurgence, like such a great season. He's still at a 934 save percentage on the year. And, you know, he got injured before and he came back. We thought maybe he'd slow down then. But no, even with that second injury, he came back and played pretty much just as well. But now with this being his second injury of the season, it's hard to rely on him at this point. Who knows if he'll be able to come back and play well? And more so, like, who knows if he'll be able to come back and actually be healthy for the rest of the season? Like, this is a pretty serious injury. It didn't look good when he went down. Peter Morazic, just like Vasilevsky, has been really, really bad lately and actually for the whole season. Like, last week he led in four goals against Anaheim and then led in three goals on 15 shots against Tampa after Howard went down. He's an 896 goalie over the last month, 899 on the season. So whether you look at short-term or long-term, Morazic has just been bad, bad, bad. Detroit called up Jared Corot, and he got the 4-3 shutout win on Friday. He got the start, and he got the win against Florida, stopping 31 of 34 shots. So not an amazing game, but better than Morazic has been doing lately. So pretty much the same questions for you about Morazic as I had about Vasilevsky like do you have to add Morazic if he's available even though he's been brutal thoughts on his long-term dynasty value he's another guy that people have thought you know oh this is a guy that you really want because in two three years when he's the starting goalie on Detroit he's gonna have so much value also like Jared Corot is he someone worth looking at like is he a better option than Gudlevsky's if you really are in a deep league and want a goalie that's gonna be getting at least one or two starts over the next couple of weeks and I'm just curious to know your thoughts also on Morazic versus Vasilevsky. So what are your thoughts on this crappy goaltending situation in Detroit? Well, one of the worst parts of it for me personally is that it's a huge bummer because we're on pins and needles now to see how much longer Jimmy Howard can keep performing at that level. I was really pumped to see him return to see if he could keep it up, if he'd prove me right or wrong. And now we have to wait even longer for that. And now there's even more of an excuse should he not be able to maintain his high level of play from before. But let's focus on the present and who will be in the net. Peter Morazic has been very bad. Yes, he had been above league average in 80 starts before this year. And he also fared pretty well. He was looked on in a pretty friendly way by 
goals saved above the average measures. So this year has actually been a real disappointment. It's worth keeping in mind that Detroit is not a very good team, but I don't think that totally excuses Mrazek's play. I would prefer Vasilevsky to Mrazek. I might prefer Corot to Gudlevskis, though, because I feel as though Detroit aren't believers in Mrazek, even though I know last year with his performances, a lot of poolies were, and his value shot right up in keeper leagues, and it should still be there. I still think he's got good value as a long-term keeper goalie. However, we have uh, Jared Corot. He's an undrafted 25-year-old, seeing his very first games in the NHL. Uh, He's been a mid-920s goalie in the AHL in about 90 appearances over the last three years. So maybe there's reason to give this guy a look. I personally think that it should be Mrazek in the net for better or for worse. But Detroit has had a very hard time committing to one goalie and trying to ride one goalie for any length of time, anytime they feel like they don't have confidence in the guy. And that's how it seems to me that they feel about Mrazek. Well, yeah, I mean, the reason why they're having trouble sticking with one goalie is because it looks like they want to stick with one goalie and Jimmy Howard and he keeps getting injured. If Mrazek keeps on putting sub 900 save percentage numbers, they're going to have no choice but to go to the backup. They can't just like lose every game because they want to stick with Mrazek. So I feel like just like Gudlevsky's, you have to sort of watch and see. And after a couple of bad games, they're going to have to bring in the backup just to see if they could turn things around. But who knows? Maybe Mrazek will be able to do better, though. Like when Howard was injured before and Mrazek got a lot of starts, he still didn't really do anything with it. I remember he had a couple of good games. It was like, oh, maybe he's finally reestablishing himself. And then he really struggled. And then when Howard came back, it was so obvious that they had to give him the net back. Anthony here in the chat is saying his lesson is hashtag never draft goalies early. That's his lesson for the year. And yeah, there's been a lot of goalies that maybe we would have expected to do really well. You know, Peter Morazic included, and you really got burned. And it's a bummer, especially if you got burned and used a high draft pick to get these guys. Obviously, Corey Schneider is maybe the prime example so far. Brian Elliott, who we're actually going to get to later in the show. He's someone that a lot of people spent a lot on. Anyway, sticking on Detroit, they actually have another injury. Mike Green is injured. They say he's going to be out at least a week. No return date set, but, you know, this is nothing new for Mike Green owners. You know he's going to miss time if you draft him. I remember he missed time last year, and he's been doing okay this season. Like, not great. I remember he started really well, but, you know, he only has two points in his last seven games, so he hasn't been great. And really no one on Detroit on the back end has been getting any points. Like, I wonder, you know, normally when a top power play defenseman gets injured, the first question is, oh, who's going to take a spot on the top power play and get an increase in value? Like, it looks like Ryan Sp- Rule got the majority of power play time in Detroit's last game, not Nicholas Cronwall, which is interesting. So it's been a big fall for Cronwall, who I actually drafted right with my very last pick in the couple, thinking it was a sneaky pick as he was injured. And I thought I'd stash him in IR. Then when he came back, I'd have like a top power play guy or someone who'd be sharing time with Mike Green. But like he's done absolutely nothing all year. Ryan Sproul, six points in 19 games played. Like, is there any value on him or for any Detroit defenseman at this point? Like, would you add any of them in response to Green being injured? First off, we need to consider how Green's value has not been very high for most of the season. Appearances can be deceiving. Over the season, he looks okay with seven goals and 11 assists for 18 points in 32 games, four power play points amongst those. That's okay. That's above a half point per game pace. But almost half, like, I don't know, 40% of those points came in his first five games. Seven of those points, three goals, four assists. He had that hat trick. And then since then, he has just four goals, seven assists for 11 points in his last 27 games, which is a sub 40 point pace. There's very little value on that Detroit back end. Even if you're looking at Mike Green, you know, you try and figure out another guy who Detroit has had since the Lidstrom and Rafalski days back that ended in 2010-2011. Nicholas Cronwall is the only Detroit defenseman to exceed 40 points in a year since that time, and he's had a pretty good stretch of power play production. 
92 power play points combined over the last five years. So it's interesting to me that they're not putting him back in that role. I mean, you look at his numbers in that role, and there was a nice bump in the middle, and he has been on the decline for the last couple of years. But that still might make him better than any of the other options. No Detroit defenseman outside of Mike Green has more than six points this year, which is just a really sad thing. You look at Ryan Spruill as a potential replacement, and there's just not a lot to say about him. He wasn't even a half point per game guy in Grand Rapids over the last few years, and he was healthy scratched as recently as December 13th. I do remember last year, maybe it was the year before, there was a little bit of hype as there was for Brendan Smith in Detroit, for him having an opportunity to emerge as a power play guy in Detroit. It just seems like that doesn't happen anymore. Nicholas Cronwell has been the only defenseman who's seen any measure of success, and already that was two and three seasons ago. I don't know who the next valuable defenseman in Detroit will be, especially with Dadsuit gone thin lineup. Yeah, for sure. And hey, Green might only be out like a week, so maybe that's not even worth looking into it. Like, really, Detroit just doesn't score as many goals as we would think because they do have what looks like a pretty deep, at least top six, like a lot of names that we would have thought would have been fantasy relevant. But really, you know, everything's pretty much the same since the last time we checked in on Detroit. Like, Zetterberg has been good. Nielsen and Vanek chipping in every once in a while, like staying on the fringes of fantasy relevance. And you've got like Larkin, Nyquist, and Tatar, all guys who were probably drafted in your leagues at the beginning of the year that might be in free agency now because they're still not doing much. Tatar had a hat trick three games ago but you know all zeros before that game and after that game so that was just a very weird blip out of nowhere I guess one guy still performing pretty well that might be available to you they might want to look at is Anthony Mantha we mentioned a little while ago he's still doing pretty well he's actually currently riding a three-game point streak two goals and two assists in that span he took four shots on goal in the last game against Florida and he's been playing with Zetterberg and Tatar at even strength and on the top power plays it's a good situation for Mantha and he's been performing lately so maybe he's worth looking at if he's in your free agent list I'd be curious about Rick which of the Detroit forwards would you want over him right now, aside from Zetterberg? Like, is there any Detroit forward free agent better than Mantha right now? If you could have any free agent you want that's not named Zetterberg, who would you take? Well, I think Larkin and Nielsen could be decent guys. I don't know if you're assuming that they're not free agents. Mantha is a decent half point per game option. His shot taking, it slowed down considerably recently, but he did just put four shots on net in his most recent outing. And his rate stats actually put him in the top five Detroit forwards this year. And even in the top three, if you're looking at individual expected goals for per 60 minutes. Add to that, like you said, good line mates and Zetterberg and, well, Tatar, whether that's good or not is up in the air, but it's better than a lot of the other options. Power play time. And he is a pretty good guy for you to cycle into your lineup if you're looking for another goal or two in a given week. I know I wanted to a couple weeks ago. I decided not to because I had too many right wingers and he scored a goal that night. I'll never forget it. Oh, Anthony's saying Vanek. Yeah, Vanek, he's been like decent, right? But not someone you could really rely on. You know, Brian, we actually added Tatar as a spot start in our joint league last week on the Monday. And I thought, oh, he got a hat trick the last game. Maybe he'll be able to get another goal. Then that game got canceled. Like, what the heck? (laughs) My spot starter didn't even play. Oh, that was the worst. That was very frustrating. They like couldn't get the ice cold enough in, in Carolina, I think. Ugh. Ridiculous. Anyway, also we had a question on Facebook, Mantha versus Palmieri. Keegan asked us in our patron-only Facebook group, which Palmieri is a name actually that we haven't mentioned for a while on the podcast. When we're talking about guys on New Jersey, we tend to talk about Hall, and then we've talked about Camilleri, who had some good runs. Then Zajac was so good, he was like the leading scorer on the team for a while. Like uh, Palmieri versus Mantha. It's an interesting question. Who would you go with? It is an interesting question. So I think I would go with whoever's being deployed in a better way. Palmieri is either playing with Pavel Zaka and Bo Bennett or Taylor Hall and Travis Zajac, which of course is much more preferable. 
and he is getting some power play time, but again, bouncing between the best power play unit and the not as good power play unit in New Jersey. So I would say whoever has the best deployment, if their deployment is equal, I would say both of them might get you a little run to help you in a given week, but you can probably expect 45 to 50 point pace from both. Maybe that's a little high for Mantha. I suppose Palmieri's upside could be a little higher just based on his experience in the league. Yeah, Palmieri, by the way, two goals in his last two games, one goal against Pittsburgh, one goal against Philadelphia. Then he had a two assist game four games ago against the Rangers. So he's been, you know, doing pretty well lately. And last year he did have 57 points, which I know you called on the podcast and said that was not going to repeat itself. And it's clearly not going to. He's probably going to be closer to 45 to 50, like you said, but I'll go with Palmieri. I didn't have a chance to answer on Facebook today. So there you go, Keegan. That's my answer though. Mantha, not, not so bad. All right. Let's go to our next injury. Rick Nash is out indefinitely with a groin injury, so this could be short or long term. You know, we don't know. That's another thing with this time off, since there haven't been games since Friday. There also haven't been morning skates, and we haven't been getting announcements. So maybe some of these injuries we'll like find out in two days that these guys are back. But it's interesting to bring up the Rangers, anyways, because Rick Nash, so he's been having a decent season, I guess. Like he has 20 points in 30 games. 13 goals and seven assists. That's a 55 point pace, which is not bad. A 35 goal pace, which is actually really good, you know, but pretty much what we expected, maybe a few more goals than we expected. But overall, you know, I didn't think of him as a 60 point guy anymore, but he's been pretty solid. Unfortunately, another thing we always expected about Rick Nash is that he's going to miss time. Just like Mike Green, he's been pretty injury prone over the last few seasons of his career. But anyways, forget about Rick Nash. If you have him, you know, you could stash him. I guess that's, you know, you're not totally screwed though. Obviously it's a bit of a downer, but like what's happened to the Rangers that we were so excited about at the beginning of the year. I know, Brian, you weren't, but a lot of people were so excited about all of these guys getting points, you know, the Hayes and the JT Miller. And by the way, Hayes, that's who I started the show referencing. I, I searched our doc for players who have yes as part of their name. And Kevin Hayes is the only one who came up. But I don't know, maybe he didn't deserve it. Just like you didn't like how I brought up Borowiecki last week as the person for me to yell at the beginning, because Hayes has been just as bad. Like if you look at the Rangers players, they've really transformed back into being a team that only has one good line. When, you know, we talked about how they have so much depth. So, you know, their top line of Stepan, Kreider, and Zuccarello, and that's what they've been running for the last couple of games. Over the last 15 games, which is about a month or so, Stepan has 13 points in those 15 games. Kreider, 11. Zuccarello, 10. So they've been pretty good. McDonough has seven points in his last 14. So he's been decent. But pretty much everyone else on the Rangers, you know, not worth looking at anymore. Kevin Hayes, five points in his last 15. Jimmy BC five as well. JT Miller, only four points in his last 15. Grabner, we were excited about Grabner. He had a hat trick, I remember, at one point. Anyways, he only has three points in his last 15. Brandon Peary only two. So I guess regression is a cruel mistress, right, Brian? And you must feel pretty smug that you were right when you were telling people not to drop any significant players for anyone on the Rangers not named Kreider, Zuccarello, or Stepan, or Rick Nash. What what does that say about me that you think I must feel smug? Do you think I'd like to say told you so? Well, I feel like, you know, you're spending a lot of time doing research and preparing for this podcast. We claim to be the best fantasy hockey podcast out there. So I'd hope that we'd get it right once in a while. So I think you should feel smug. You deserve it. You're doing the work and you're trying to help people. If they didn't listen to you, that's their fault. You got it right. Good for you. Okay. Okay. I I get it. And the thing is, I can't get too smug about it because regression has struck far harder than I would have imagined. And that's the reason why some of these guys have gone so cold. After carrying a wildly high team shooting percentage for quite a while, the Rangers are down to a meager 6.5% shooting conversion rate at even strength over the last month. And that qualifies them as unlucky. Only six other teams are converting fewer shots into goals than the Rangers are since the end of November. There was talk of the Rangers having found a way to garner more high-danger chances and play a way that would let them sustain a higher shooting percentage because of the higher quality chances they were garnering for themselves. This regression that we're seeing certainly dampens 
those claims will still wait and watch how this plays out through the rest of the year. But either A, that's not a thing. Like you can't do that. They didn't find a better way to play to permanently raise their shooting percentage above what's a reasonable amount or other teams have figured it out. In any case, I still think in New York, it's top line only for me. The guys you mentioned of who's healthy, Stepan, Kreider, Zuccarello. McDonough, by the way, has been a pretty underrated producer on the blue line. I think he's undervalued in a lot of leagues, at least by people who don't own him, or maybe even those who do. Might be worth seeing if you can acquire him. Although at this point, like I said, his owner might realize that he's a pretty good guy. Um, there have been a couple weeks where I had cycled in Brandon Peary, as kind of a hired gun for an extra game or two, but he never did what I wanted Anthony Mantha to do for me. He never scored in that time. He rarely even got a shot on goal. So I'm not even interested in that anymore. All this depth scoring on the Rangers, I think you can forget about for now, at least until Mika Zibanejad comes back. And that's in two to four weeks. He'll be someone to watch, someone who could come into the lineup, help another couple guys score and get himself back on a 50, 55 point pace with a bunch of shots too. Yeah, that's true. Like Zibanejad being out might be a big part of all of this. Like Anthony asked in the chat here, is it regression or is it other teams adapting? And then Chris had a little bit of both. Plus injuries are playing a part as well. And like I said, Zibanejad's out. And also Pavel Buchnevich, who we were talking about at the beginning of the season, someone who was doing really well. He was a top six guy. So, you know, maybe if they could get back to Nash, Stepan and VC and then Kreider, Zuccarello and Buchnevich and then, you know, Zibanejad with JT Miller, like there could still be some value for these guys later on. But for now, I agree with you, Brian. You might as well drop them for players who are producing. Brandon Peary still on the top power play last game, playing with Kreider, Stepan, and Zuccarello. But, you know, nothing to show for. Like I said, two points in his last 15. Let's move on to our next injury. Paul Stasny is on the IR in St. Louis with an upper body injury. He's already been kind of a snoozer for the past little while. He only has five points in his last 13 games over the last month. Maybe this gives a chance for Alex Steen to finally wake up. Another opening in the top six as he'd been playing in the bottom six for a little while. A lot of people have been wondering if maybe the time has finally come to give up on Alex Steen. You know, we get these tweets of people. I feel so bad for them. They're like, can I drop Alex Steen, please? Like, I know that they just want us to write, yeah, go ahead and drop him because they want to, you know, pick up someone who's on a bit of a hot streak. But, you know, it's hard to recommend dropping Alex Steen for like Anthony Mantha, even though Steen has been performing so much worse than Mantha over the last little while. Anyways, let's see what happens with this Stasny injury. But Alex Steen, okay, one assist in those last seven games, only zero, one or two shots in each of those games. If you look at the last game's lines, it was Laterra, Schwartz, and Tarasenko, and then Steen, Perron, and Berglund, Fabri, Yaskin, and Brodziak. So, you know, but the thing with the St. Louis lines is you can't even look at them because they change all the time. And now I'm curious to see if maybe Steen, if you recall when he came back from injury, he was playing center and like centering Tarasenko. Like that is pretty much the best at this point. At this point, I kind of want to know is there anyone on St. Louis who can produce outside of play with Tarasenko? It kind of doesn't seem like that and is Steen going to be able to get points if he doesn't play with Tarasenko on the top line or power play I'd like to think yes I'm a little worried that he's older than we have considered him like just not chronologically but also with the damage he's taken on his body he's missed time for injury this year and in the past I'm losing faith in that he can be a 55 60 point player who averages two and a half or three shots per game at this point I'm holding out hope that this isn't a permanent thing, that there is just maybe a nagging injury that this extra few days off is going to help him recover from, or just time with Tarasenko is on the horizon and that's going to make everything better. I don't have much to say about him other than that his play has been quite stinky lately. Brutal. Stinky lately. Yeah, we got it. We got it, Brian. It's okay. But like how long? So as a fantasy hockey expert, 
such as you are, like how long do you wait for an Alex Dean? Like you're, if he keeps on doing nothing, getting one assist in his next seven games, do you drop him after the next seven games? I'm curious how long of a leash do you give to a guy who's been so productive for so many years, but now is doing nothing and not taking the shots on goal and not playing on a good line? At some point you have to drop him, but of course you don't want to drop him. Then as soon as you do it, finally he's able to produce. And then you're like, ah, I dropped it. Oh, just like what I did, by the way, with Verbata, who went slow for a couple of games. I dropped him for some stupid reason. Oh, I'm so frustrated. About, oh, I've had a really bad couple of weeks in the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patriot Fan Tracks League. But I'm ranting and going off track again. Curious to know, just general strategy, when you have a guy like Alex Dean with the pedigree, with the history, that's doing nothing, how much longer do you wait? You're saying you still have faith for how much longer will this faith last? Well, I own him in two of my leagues and he's frustrating me a lot in two of my leagues. There's one that's a little shallower and I'm starting to lose patience there. I think I'm going to give him another couple games and then we'll see what happens. The other league is the cup full, the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fan Tracks League. And there just aren't a lot of good free agent options out there. Nobody that I can count on for even more than half point per game upside, let alone reliably half point per game. So for that reason, I will rather keep running with the risk of Steen doing nothing with the hope that he can become a 50-55 point player again, rather than trade him in for a guy who I can only hope to get to 45 points in the best of circumstances. Right, which I guess is like Anthony Mantha. You know, you think even in the best case, he's probably not more than a 50-point guy. Steen does have that upside. Okay, we'll put him back on the shelf. Let's bring up Alex Steen in another couple of weeks if he's still doing nothing, and then we'll decide whether we're going to have to officially label him a snoozer or not. Hopefully, he'll bounce back. He was like a 70-point guy just a couple seasons ago, or at least pace, because he never actually plays a full season, of course. Anthony's saying Perron greater than Steen in the chat. You know, Perron also hasn't been that great lately, so it's not as if you could just say that. Like, But, you know, Fabry, by the way, a guy who we were excited about playing with, Tarasenko. Brian, you said the thing with St. Is people are always shifting around, so you can't really rely on anyone. You were totally right. Like Fabry is now off the Tarasenko line, or at least he was forbidden. He hasn't been getting as many points lately. Just it's just basically the Tarasenko show there. It's crazy. This team looked to be really deep, but that's the only line that seems to put up points. By the way, there's a defenseman named Brad Hunt who was called up by St. Louis recently and had a point in each of his first four games. Nothing in his last two games, but that leaves him with four points in six games on the season. Is this someone that should be on people's radars or was the run of production kind of just an anomaly and is he sort of a nobody guy that you shouldn't worry about? I see he's not even playing 20 minutes a game. Yeah, he's this undrafted, undersized AHL journeyman blue liner, 28 years old, so he's no spring chicken. He had three points in 21 career NHL games before this call-up, all of them coming with Edmonton, Uh, but he has consistently produced well above a half point per game in the minors. That said, there are plenty of other options on that St. Louis blue line, so I wouldn't expect him to get a really long look at a really great spot to score points anytime in the future, and hey, maybe he's doing great things for Peoria unless St. Louis has changed affiliates without me knowing. Someone in the chat could comment on that, I suppose. It's not. It's the Chicago Wolves. That just shows you the last NHL video game I bought came when Peoria still was the St. Louis Blues affiliate. Well, that's actually like probably pretty recently because the last NHL video game I bought didn't have minor league teams in the picture at all. So I didn't even know that was a thing. But yeah, Brad Hunt, I, I don't see any reason to add him. Like for sure, there were some people asking in our Facebook group. So I was wondering if maybe people out there listening were thinking about him. Sometimes a guy just gets points for even three, four games in a row. But I always look at the deployment and the shots on goal. If you're not seeing a lot of power play time and you're not even seeing, for a defenseman, I like to see close to 20 minutes, if not over 20 minutes a game. And if not, it's really hard to rely on that defenseman to be able to put up a lot of points. I guess Ghost Bear last year didn't play too many minutes. I'd even 
strength, but he made up for it with power play time. So that's the thing you have to check there. Okay, Brian, you came up with this great pun, Steam Key. And now everyone who's hearing it is wondering, oh man, I wish I could say that. I would like want to go to a St. Louis Blues game with a sign that says Steam Key and they don't have the opportunity because tickets are so expensive and so frustrating to buy. But actually now that is no longer the case because of our sponsor, SeatGeek. Because finally, buying tickets for sports and concerts has been made easier. You don't have to worry about clicking on and seeing the pricing. Oh, it looks like a decent price. And right at the last minute, it turns out it's actually like 30% higher. They didn't show you all the fees and all of that stuff. With SeatGeek, you see what the final price is going to be right there. And you know they also want to help you get the most bang for your buck. That's why every ticket on SeatGeek is given a grade based on value. You'll immediately see any underpriced seats to be able to find the best deals that fit your budget. And best of all... If your budget's a little tight, SeatGeek's going to make the deal even better for listeners of Keeping Carlson. Why don't you tell us about it, Brian? They sure will. When you sign up for SeatGeek and you enter the promo code KEEPING, you will receive a $20 check in the mail as a rebate from your first purchase of tickets through SeatGeek. So you can knock $20 off the price of whatever you're buying on SeatGeek for the first time because you're a listener of the show and they appreciate that. Yeah, and by the way, we appreciate it too because you're kind of supporting the show because you're letting them know that you heard us talking about them. So yeah, download the app next time you want to buy tickets, put in that offer code KEEPING, get your $20 check, and have fun with your funny signs with all of Brian's puns that he comes up with every week. He'll keep them coming. So yeah, for prices on fleek, check out SeatGeek. Let's move on to the next fantasy hockey headline of the week, which is outjuries. So we're through with the injuries. That's nice. Big outjury, Corey Crawford, back for Chicago. We talked about how Howard and Bishop went down, but at least for the Corey Crawford owners, their week wasn't so bad in Nets. They got him back. I guess for the people who picked up Darling, that was a bit of a downer. But yeah, not much to say here about Corey Crawford. He's great, right? He led in two goals on 34 shots in his return in a 2-1 overtime loss to Colorado. By the way, Calvin Pickard had a good game that game, and probably now people are going to add him, especially since they're saying Varlamov might have a groin injury, though I'm seeing that that injury is not going to be long-term, so maybe not. Anyways, with Pickard, he always blows up my stats, so I'm going to not pick him up. But we're talking about Corey Crawford here. He's been great. 927 save percentage on the season. One of the best goalies you can own in fantasy, it seems. So definitely, I would say it's time to dump Scott Darling. Like, he was a great ad for while you had him, and maybe he helped you win a couple of weeks. But I'd say right now, it's pretty obvious that Corey Crawford is going to get in and play the majority of games for Chicago. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. So if you had Darling like I did... It's okay to have dropped him. If you're really on the ball, you would have dropped him already to make another move. Let's just take a minute, though, before we move forward into the future of Crawford and rewind to when he first got injured. And we said that Chicago was a team that was doing really well. I think they were first in the league at that point. But I warned that that wasn't necessarily a reason to put a lot of faith in Darling as somebody who's coming into the crease on the league's top team because Chicago's success had been coming totally on the back of Corey Crawford. So if Darling couldn't hold up his end of the bargain or even like play phenomenally, as phenomenally as Corey Crawford was, we couldn't expect as good things. We couldn't expect to keep the wins coming. But then Darling came in and was fantastic in 10 starts in Crawford's absence. Darling posted a record of 6-3-1, and 9.30 save percentage, 2.12 goals against average, the sixth best save percentage in the NHL since the start of December amongst regular starters. So good for you, Scott Darling. And the takeaway from all that is that Chicago still leads the league in save percentage at even strength with a 9.47 that cannot last. For context, only six teams last season had a save percentage above 9.30 last year. The highest was the Rangers at 9.34, a full 13 points lower than what Chicago's putting up right now. So if you want to make a bet with someone who thinks Chicago remains a top team or in the top three or even top five in the standings by year's end, 
maybe that's a good bet for you to make. By the way, before we move on, Elon, while we're talking about the standings, on December 26, 2016, who do you think the first overall team in the NHL is? Oh, okay. Well, I know that I have in my notes later on that Columbus has won a million games in a row, and so has Minnesota. Columbus was doing good. You're only bringing this up because it's some crazy team, so I'm going to guess Columbus. It is. It is Columbus. The Columbus Blue Jackets are the best team in the NHL through several games, through to December 26th, and they actually have two, three, or four games in hand on the rest of the top five, which is just insane. It's the best start in franchise history, a 23-5-4 and four record, which is just bonkers. Like, that's hard to believe until you see it on the NHL's website. Interesting, other teams in the top 10, Minnesota, Philadelphia, and Ottawa are all in the top 10 in the league. Philadelphia is actually the only one of that group, including Columbus, who has had subpar goaltending. In fact, hasn't had top five or top 10 goaltending. Their save percentage ranks 27th in the league so far this year, but it's gotten a lot better lately and that's helped them get up the standings. Plus their shooting percentage is pretty healthy. So good for them. Imagine what they'll do if they can keep having great goaltending through the season as they've had over the last couple of weeks with good goalie, Steve Mason. Yeah, of course, when you look at Philadelphia's save percentage for the whole season, it's like, it's basically a tale of two seasons. Like Mason was so bad and Neuverth wasn't much better before Neuverth got injured. Brian, again, I'm going to keep giving you credit. You called it when Neuverth went down. He said, now's the time to add Mason. He's the type of goalie that needs to play lots of games. And then Philly went and won like a million games in a row. Mason has been great. But Brian, I'm not going to let you get away with bringing up how Columbus is the top team in the league without asking, just like Anthony here in the chat, is Columbus a real thing? Like, is that something that you can expect them to keep up? Like you said, Chicago, you expect them to fall because their goaltending has been you know maybe too good or unsustainably good at least Corey Crawford no question that he's good maybe not this good but Columbus top team in the league all of these players have been doing so well I actually might as well just bring up my little Columbus segment from later on here they've won 12 in a row now in that stretch Atkinson 15 points in 12 games Gagne 14 points in 12 games what Sam Gagne he was nothing going into this season ridiculous Brandon Saad 11 and 12 Wenberg 10 Hartnell 9 Dubinsky 7 points in the last 12 and he was really slow at the start of the year so he's picked it up Nick Felino has 7 points in his last 10 games so he missed a few with injury so that's really good Seth Jones 7 points Zach Wierenski only 5 points in his last 12 which is not horrible but I would have liked a bit more with all of those wins and goals that Columbus is scoring anyway Brian I guess overall with Columbus, like, do you think these guys can keep up their production? Are they now a top team in the league and worthy of owning all of these guys? Obviously, they're worth owning, but do you think that it's sustainable? You know, I don't know how to answer that question because I've been pretty low on Columbus through this whole thing. I've said their goaltending on the penalty kill will get worse, and it has, but not enough to really hamper them. I said that their shooting percentage on the power play would get lower, and it has a little, but again, not enough to hamper them. They still rank second in the league in PDO. So they are seeing the league's third best save percentage and the league's fourth best shooting percentage. It's rare to be that high in one of those categories, let alone both at the same time. So I expect there to be some regression, especially from Sergei Bobrovsky, who's been playing out of his mind all season long. There are some things that seem to be working. Their even strength play is still very strong. And in fact, defensively, I was reading today, Brad Shaw, on defense. I think the article was over at today's slap shot about how Bradshaw's come in and really turned that team around. A team that bled shots against down at the bottom of the league last year, all of a sudden right near the top in suppressing shots again. So good for Columbus, good for them. I think they're doing a lot that's working out well and is making them a better team. I don't know if it makes them first ranked in the league. 
yeah, maybe top in the league is a bit much. Maybe they won't be able to hold on to that, but they're probably going to make the playoffs. Like they don't even have to win that many more games. I would think if they're only like 50% for the rest of the season, they'll probably be well into the playoffs with this big lead they've given themselves. So it'd be interesting to see if they'll be able to now become a team that could win not only in the regular season, but in the playoffs as well. They're going to get their chance. You know, some people in the chat here are saying maybe that Seth Jones for Johansson trade. Maybe that was a pretty good trade for them. Clearly they didn't need Johansson to get offense. So they might as well get stronger defensively. And Seth Jones, like I said, is even getting some points. Then also we're having mentions here is Cam Atkinson, the new Tarasenko. Like we have to mention Cam Atkinson at this point. Like I said, he has 15 points in his last 12. He's up to 35 points in 32 games on the year. That's over a point per game in 32 games. That's not a small sample size. 96 shots on goal in that span. Like, how good is Cam Atkinson? Is he going to get drafted in, like, the first and second rounds of fantasy leagues next year? Or if not, like, I would think that that his owners should be selling high right now and trying to get someone like a, like a Claude Giroux or who even knows what you could get for a guy with this many points. There was a time when Cam Atkinson was supposed to be a near can't miss 60 plus point guy right about the time when he was breaking into the league that hadn't happened until maybe now. I still think that his percentages are high along with the rest of the teams and that this isn't going to keep up, but it's a fantastic start. If you own Cam Atkinson, I think it'd be crazy not to try to sell high. Same thing with Alex Wenberg, who I think has 29 points in 32 games, almost on a point-per-game pace himself. These guys are amazing. I don't think they're point-per-game players. I don't think they're 65-plus point players. I think in a good year, 55 points, maybe they can get close to 60. And that's the pace I'm working with, trying to project the rest of their season. So if you can get an established top-end guy, like maybe you can reach out to Evgeny Malkin's owner and say, look, he's going to get injured at the wrong time. Why not just take Kem Atkinson instead? That would be amazing. Well, I mean, good luck with that. <laughs> You're talking about one of the few people who have more points than Kem Atkinson so far on the season. Malkin, I think, is like second in the league behind Connor McDavid. But yeah, I get what you're saying. Brian, I'm curious to know like, your strategy. Like, obviously, right now you have it in your head that Kem Atkinson is like not more than a 60-point guy. Then if he does get, say, like 65 points or even 70 points this season, then when you go into next year's draft, will you then think, will you reclassify him? Do you sort of work? And by the way, I'm not saying this is a criticism, right? Like, you do very well in fantasy, and that's why I'm asking you this question. How do you decide when to reclassify a player a guy like Kim Atkinson who going through and even now you're saying like you would definitely want to get a guy who's been an established 70 point guy over Kim Atkinson like how long does it take for that to flip for you well to kick this part off you said his point totals after 35 games and you said that's not a small sample I would argue against that I would argue that it's a fairly small sample especially from what we can expect to see from a whole player's career we've seen players do incredible things over 30 40 even 82 games I have to say, if I look at the end of the year and I see his numbers stay exactly the way they are, it's like he and Alex Wenberg both seemed like they were doing some pretty sustainable things for a while. And it still looks that way at even strength. If you go ahead and take a look at what they're doing on the power play, though, that's where I found it unsustainable for Alex Wenberg. And I find it similarly unsustainable for Cam Atkinson. He has 16 points on the power play so far this year, seven goals on 23 shots with the man advantage a super high IPP. His on-ice shooting percentage is also quite high with the man advantage, although that could be in large part due to his own shooting success. So you can probably take a few of those points away. At the same time, those bumps are matched with other bumps in more sustainable categories, like his shot attempts are way up, higher than they've ever been per 60 minutes on the power play. So yeah, there's there's a lot to comb through and when the season is said and done, that's when I'll feel comfortable doing a post-mortem for now. I still feel like he's somebody you can try and trade for someone you know is going to get 70 points or more. 
Yeah, for sure. I guess you could get a for sure 70 point guy. You got to do it. But like so good. Cam Atkinson, Anthony saying in the chat here, is the league changing faster, more mobile, better for smaller players like Cam Atkinson? So yeah, that's like, you know, clearly something is happening. Like Gojo small. Like, they're having a fun time in the chat here discussing this. By the way, you could join us live every week. Keepingcarlson.com slash live. Obviously, normally it's on Sundays. Today it's on Monday. During the holidays, forget it. But we'll let you know the schedule at the end of the show. Okay, let's go back to Outjuries, which is where we were before we did this little detour over to Columbus. Let's go to Boston because they've had a couple big names come back. Well, one big name, David Pasternak, returned for the Bruins for Thursday and Friday's games. No points, but three and five shots respectively. We already talked about him when he got injured saying how great of a season he's been having so we won't dig too much into him but i will say he was back on the top line with bergeron and marshawn and on the power play with those guys and you think i'm going to say david kreischi don't you but i won't it's ryan spooner who was on the top power play with pasternak marshawn and bergeron in the last game ryan spooner remember him the guy going into the season that we thought was going to maybe have a bit of a breakout year we thought he was going to be in the top six and on the top power play and he was on the bottom six and not getting power by time he's been kind of useless all year all of a sudden spooner jumps to the top power play he also joined Krejci and Bacchus on the second line and you know Frank Vetrano came in we'll get to him in a second and we were thinking and a lot of people a lot of the patrons on Facebook were saying they thought Frank Vetrano was gonna make a huge impact but maybe he doesn't have room if Ryan Spooner is able to hold this spot Spooner had one assist at Florida then a goal and an assist in the last game against Carolina so is it time to consider him relevant again or am I getting too excited about two games in a good role with a bit of production he's finally getting 16 plus minutes in his last four games after being closer to 10 or 11 for a stretch before that he also took like six shots in the last game so ryan spooner definitely had a good end to i guess 2016 or there'll be a couple of more games but a big end to the pre-christmas 2016 so i'm curious to know your thoughts on him as someone who seems to finally be getting the spot that we thought he would at the beginning of the year it looks like he's out of the doghouse which bodes well for at least a little bit of sunshine for ryan spooner and of course he's taking advantage it's helping him get points his rate stats, though, they don't actually place him amongst the top six forwards in Boston. But we do know that Claude Julien has not been making it easy on him through the year. He fell down the depth chart a lot sooner than we thought he would, if we even thought he would at all. I don't think that he's a can't-miss guy for your lineup all of a sudden. But I think there's 50-point value if he holds on to a good spot on the Boston depth chart. However, I'm still concerned that Julian still has a thing for him that, you know, his next mistake is the one that lands him back on the bench for significantly more time per game. This is a big bump we're seeing from him and it's the ice time I'd like to see, but I'm not ready to buy in completely both because I still think his spot is a little precarious in the lineup. And I also don't think his upside is super high. Like 55 points is probably the most you could hope for. And I think 50 points is most reasonable. Yeah, well, I mean, you don't have to really buy. Like no one is thinking that they're going to be adding Ryan Spooner and he's going to all of a sudden become like a 70 point player. But, you know, sometimes on this show, we got to bring up some guys that you're going to think of cycling in for the next week or two until they slow down. And I think as long as he's on the top power play in Boston with David Pasternak and company, he's worth looking at. Or maybe you might want to be stubborn and look at Frank Vetrano. And now I'm sort of poking fun at Patty, especially here in the chat, who's been a big fan of Vetrano ever since we found out that he was going to be coming back. And she was saying, oh, he's thunkably good. And I think a few people were actually really excited about him. So and yeah, and obviously a great return. He scored a goal on his first shot in his first game back at Florida. Then nothing against Carolina. Two and one shots in those two games he's played respectively. He's been seeing second power play unit time third line but you know i remember when gabrick came back and he started on the third line and you know he just needed to get his legs and he ended up moving into the top six so i don't know if maybe his role will increase as he adjusts to getting back to playing in the nhl after missing the whole season with an injury a few patrons wanted to drop like i said decent pieces for frank vetrano is there any value there 
I'm not sure there's a ton. He's a guy who had eight goals and three assists for 11 points in his first year last season. He played 39 games, had two goals in his two tune-up games for Providence. I'm not overly excited about him. I know there's a lot of love in Boston for him, but I don't think it's enough to encourage you to drop substantial pieces for him. Maybe a decent guy to have on your radar for cycle starts, but at this point, nothing more. I would prefer Spooner if I was choosing between the two. Yeah, I mean, for me, you got to take the guy on the top power play. Spooner versus like Anthony Mantha. Where do you go there, Brian? For, you know, not for the whole season, like for the next couple of weeks. I think I'll still go with Mantha because I just, like I said, like three times in the last three minutes, I just don't trust that Ryan Spooner can maintain his spot in the lineup for very long. I think he's going to make a minor mistake or maybe a big mistake, and he's going to pay the price in ice time and deployment. Okay, and I'll bring up another guy right now that maybe we could add to this conversation. Let's check in on Carolina. They had a couple of outjuries recently. Uh, Elias Lindholm has been back for five games after he missed five games with a lower body injury. He's a guy that some people were excited about going into the season, at least as someone who could maybe get a 50-point pace, but he hasn't been doing it. He's been having a pretty weak season, but looks like he got back with Victor Rask and Jeff Skinner last game on the top line, and he contributed two assists. So that's obviously a good spot to be in, and that's also good for Victor Rask, who had been playing with some guys that I wasn't too happy about as a Victor Rask owner. Still, though, not getting power play time. We're talking about Elias Lindholm here. So I'd imagine he's still a fringe guy. He's probably available as a free agent in your league. I'm curious to know what you think about him compared to these other guys like the Ryan Spooners of the world. I guess I'd prefer him over the Ryan Spooners of the world because I expect some consistency at the top end of the lineup, although we've seen what that's worth in Carolina, which is not a whole lot of points. It's actually been Jeff Skinner and Derek Ryan, that undrafted 29-year-old we mentioned a couple weeks ago. They've been leading the way for the Hurricanes with 11 points in their last 15 games. But Lindholm's return pushed Ryan off of that top line. Maybe it pushes him off of it for good. Derek Ryan spent time on a line with Lee Stepniak and Brock McGinn in his most recent game. So if you've got a drop to make and Derek Ryan is on your team, now would probably be a sensible time. If you've got to choose between Lindholm and Spooner as the guy you add for Derek Ryan, I'd probably go Lindholm. But he's been a disappointment for like two years at least now in fancy seemingly always in a position to score and put up points but again that's just not the sort of thing that happens in Carolina very easily yeah though it has finally been happening somewhat easily for Justin Falk who did nothing all year but he actually has seven points in his last five games so finally a reprieve for all these Falk owners who have been holding on so frustrated all year Hopefully this will continue going into 2017 for Justin Fogg. We expected him to be like a 45, 50-point guy. Hopefully he could stay on that pace or maybe even more. Like I said, seven points in his last five games. There's been actually a few defensemen who people were so frustrated about for so long who have finally started to produce. John Carlson, six points in his last six. Tori Krug, six points in his last seven. So finally, the people who drafted these defensemen, and I actually own all three of them, Brian, in our league that we're against each other in. So I've finally been able to see some production. I actually saw a lot of it against you last week when I was able to come back and get a big 6-4-1, I believe, win. So that was nice. And by the way, you talked about Derek Ryan. I wonder how the guy in our league is feeling who dropped Brandon Saad for him last week. What a, what a dummy. What a dummy. And it helped you, and that makes me even more upset about it. Yeah, I spent 11 fab dollars, and I'm happy to have done it. Okay, so that's it for Outreach. Oh, no, one more. Brian's favorite player, let's mention, also in Carolina, Eddie Lack, has been taken off the IR. He hasn't played a game yet. But Cam Ward, you know, he went through a rough stretch, but has actually bounced back with three great games, all wins before the break. So, Brian, are you getting excited to add Eddie Lack next time he gets a start so that you can spot start him and hope that he finally takes the job away from Cam Ward? No, I'm not. Eddie Lack is no longer my favorite player. 
Uh, Carolina's won five of their last seven. And I only mentioned that because my first thought was like, I don't want lack at all because Carolina doesn't even win enough games to make it worthwhile. And then I checked and they've been doing really well lately, but they're still in the bottom half of league standings, even with that little run. And then going back to lack personally, what has he done this year? Well, he's put up an 856 save percentage. One out of his four starts have been quality. And he has embarrassed me terribly, both on the show and in my own leagues, where I committed to him for way too long, waiting for Cam Ward to relinquish the job to the clearly better goalie. Something's just not happening in Carolina to make that work, though. So I had hope coming into the season, but it was so much hope, and I had it last year, too. It's time for me to get over him. I'm not saying he's no good and that there's no chance in the future, but he's nearing Darcy Kemper territory for me in terms of goalies that have burned me too many times. Darcy Kemper is like the ultimate pinnacle of a goalie that made me so mad at him for all my continued faith in him that was never rewarded except for the times that I finally gave up. So, hey, maybe this is the time to start considering lack. I don't think so, though. I think he's going to need to leave Carolina for something good to happen. Yeah, so basically you're saying that you're giving him the ultimate anti-jinx right now. And maybe now that you said you're finally giving up on him, now's the time that he'll finally be good. Like, he'll probably get a game at some point in the next week or two. Like, they're not just going to play Cam Ward every game, and he is the backup goalie. I'll be interested to see how Eddie Lack does. Maybe his time recovering from injury has also given him some time to reevaluate his game, figure out what's been missing since he left Vancouver. Okay, Brian, so... We're done with outreach. Let's go to our next fantasy hockey headline of the week, which are cold streaks. We already talked about Alex Steen, who's been so bad. But I want to mention him again and how stinky he has been. Almost as bad as Eddie Lack, who's been lacking the talent needed to help your fantasy team. I wonder if we could come up with a pun for this next guy, Jordan Everly, whose name has been popping up a lot on Twitter and in our patron-only Facebook group. People asking if it's time to get up Jordan Everly. And if you take a look, even though he's been on the McDavid line for much of the season, including recently, he is pointless in his last six games played. He's even been off the top power play for a while. Looks like he got bumped by Mark Letestu. So we'll get back to him in a second. And actually, last game versus San Jose, it looks like they moved McDavid to play with Pat Maroon and Dreisaitl and brought up Ryan Nugent Hopkins to center Lucic and Eberle. So Edmonton, I guess, is moving things around, which isn't good for Eberle. But like even when he was with McDavid, he hasn't been scoring lately, like I said. Overall, he has 23 points in 36 game played on the season, which is a 52-point pace, which is like not that great. That's like fringe fantasy-relevant numbers. So when do people start considering giving up on Jordan Eberle? And I'd be curious where you rank him with Alex Steen. Because I'll bet you there are people with Steen in their leagues that have seen Eberle dropped that are like, oh, should I drop Steen for Eberle? And I'll bet you there's also people with Eberle in their leagues that have seen Steen drop and think, oh, should I drop Steen? Or maybe I said the same thing twice. But you can get what I'm saying. Like whenever you have a slumping player and then another slumping player gets dropped, that's when we get the question, oh, should I drop this slumping player for this slumping player? So you might be on either side of this equation. So Brian, I'd be curious to know if one of them should be dropping their guy for the other guy. I think I would prefer Jordan Eberle over Alex Steen. I have Alex Steen in those leagues. If Eberle was available, I would make that move. I think Eberle's struggles are a symptom of a bigger problem in Edmonton that's been happening over the last little while. They've been experiencing a plummeting share of goals for uh, shots and shot attempts. And part of that might have been because their schedule leading into the break was treacherous in both the amount of games they played and the opposition that they were playing too. Now, Eberle, there's no way I can excuse him having only seven shots in these six pointless games, but I am hoping that it is just a rest thing, that they just need to get their bearings again and everything's going to be okay. The thing with the Oilers is that if you're not playing with McDavid, and I know you said he's been with McDavid for a bunch and sometimes without also, there's no secondary driver of offense on that team. Patrick Maroon actually seems to be the next best guy after McDavid at making his line mates better 
when he plays with them, but he's not someone Eberly is going to get to play with very often. I think at the end of the day, this is just six games for Eberly. It's been a really bad six games, but it's still just six games. I know the bigger picture, Elon, at this point is that he's on a 52-point pace, but I don't really have long-term concerns about Eberly's play. I still think of him as a 55-60 point guy, and we can cut him some slack on some unreasonably low individual and on-ice shooting percentages as well. I think we need to take a breath and see if he can at least get those shots on goal numbers to come back now that there's been a bit of a break in the schedule. I would be ready to buy low if you see an Eberle owner who is losing faith. So you're basically saying he's had some ebbs, Eberle's and flows, but you think he's going to bounce back. Okay, I'm going to stop this. This is your job, actually, to come up with the episode titles with all these puns. And actually, that was Patty in the chat room who came up with that. So, okay, you're saying also that the only other person who's been driving offense aside from McDavid has been Pat Maroon. I got to ask you about Leon Dreisaitl. He's been so good this season. Maybe you're going to say that he hasn't been doing it in terms of Corsi or whatever, but Dreisaitl, I'm curious, though, have you changed your mind about him? He's someone who going into the season, you said that you didn't think he'd be able to do what he did last year with Taylor Hall out of the picture and even not playing with Connor McDavid. He still has five points in his last four games, up to 31 points in 36 games overall on the season. I'd be curious to know if you'd prefer Dreisaitl or Eberle moving forward. That's a tougher one than I'd like to admit. You know, the thing with Drysaddle is he doesn't drive play. He's not a driver. He's somebody who's very good at riding shotgun with guys who can drive play, but he rarely makes the people around him better. In fact, sometimes he makes them worse. And that's my general concern with Drysaddle. But hey, as long as he's playing with McDavid sometimes and on a very, very strong Oilers power play, he has 14 power play points in 36 games. That's two more power play points already this year in 32 games or whatever than he had in the first 109 games of his career combined. My overall line on him hasn't changed, though. He's valuable with McDavid and with power play time. Not so valuable without him, although I do need to give him some credit. The large majority of his even strength points have come without McDavid, and he's second on the team in even strength points, sandwiched between McDavid and Maroon. It's been a good year for him. I don't know. You can hear me. I keep going back and forth saying, well, he's not that good at this, but his points are really good, but he's not that good at this, but his points are still really good. So I don't know where to land on Leon Dreisaitl, except that he's a good player when he's playing with other talented players. I would be concerned if he falls off that top power play or never plays again with Connor McDavid. I'd hope at least in the meantime, he gets to play with Patrick Maroon. I'm ready to eat a bit of crow on Leon Dreisaitl. I know I've poo-pooed him a lot over the last couple of years, and I've been right maybe as often as I've been wrong. This has been a very good year for Leon Dreisaitl. And if you have him in your league, I guess you can just enjoy the ride for now. I don't see any imminent changes you need to make, unless, of course, you can do what you would do with Kem Atkinson, which is trade for somebody who's been on Dreisaitl's current point pace for many years before. So you mean like Alex Steen? No, not like Alex Steen, because Alex (laughs) Steen is getting old and he's a little banged up. He's not someone I'd be excited to obtain, although... I don't know. That that would be an interesting thought. I'm not ready to, to make a bet on it or anything, but Drysaddle or Steen rest of season, that could be an interesting one. I think it's going to be Drysaddle, but you know me. I'm, I'm not the person who is able to look past the most recent play, or I try to my best, but like, it's been a whole season and Drysaddle has been so, so good. But like you say, it's interesting that his underlying numbers don't seem to support the hypothesis that he'll be able to keep this up, but of course we'll see. And I guess, yeah, we're on Edmonton. I still want to mention a couple of the guys that you have been mentioning slightly because all these guys so far, the Everleys and the Drysaddles, you know, they're not available to you in free agency, but maybe Mark Letestu is. And like I said, he's the one who bumped Everly off the top power 
power play, he's playing the Sam Gagne role right now. He's out of the top six on even strength, but on the top power play. And he has seven points in his last six games, just like Sam Gagne has been doing. Sometimes power play is all you need, even though actually only three of those seven points have been on the power play. So I don't even know. But Mark Letestu, he played 20 minutes versus San Jose. So he got a lot of time. Obviously, the coach has faith in him. I don't really even know who he is, like where he came from. Like, has he been on the Oilers for a while? I'd be curious to know if he's worth a spot start pickup. And I'll also throw out Pat Maroon, like we've been mentioning a bunch of times. He had that good run earlier when he was playing with McDavid. And then, you know, he went quiet when he was away from him. He seems like the kind of guy that could only really put up offense when he's on the McDavid line. But hey, two goals in his last three games. And like I said, he's playing with McDavid again, or at least he was for the second half of the last game against San Jose. Latesto's been around a while. He's already 31. He's played for Pittsburgh and Columbus in the past. Never been a huge producer. He's done well in the AHL, but in the NHL, 169 points in 433 career games. He has been a great contributor to that Oilers power play, though. Over at Copper and Blue, there's been a few very good articles about what's happening with the Oilers right now, who's helping, who's hurting. And a lot has been focused on this power play. There were concerns that they've been in the top of the league all year long, but they lagged behind in the amount of unblocked shot attempts that they were generating with the man advantage, which could have been a canary in a coal mine for speaking to that success on the power play being unsustainable. Latestu, though, since he's been getting more power play time, the Oilers have been generating more unblocked shot attempts. So I don't know if that's mere coincidence or if that is Latestu helping out, but he is cashing in on the fruits of his labor on that power play. I wouldn't expect big things to come at even strength, but perhaps some continued time on power play one could make him a decent depth guy to have in some formats. Elon, I think Sam Gagne was a very apropos comparison. Okay, and I'll bet there's a lot of people who are kicking themselves right now because they didn't add Sam Gagne when they had the chance. Are you recommending that they don't make the same mistake with Mark Latestu? Like, you know, if we're comparing him to, say, Elias Lindholm or Mantha or who else did we bring up earlier? I don't know, like these guys that have been in our conversation so far this episode, does Latestu rank among the top of them? For like niche production, for someone who can get you special teams points, which are harder to find on the waiver wire than just whatever points uh, he could have some value there. I know he had value for me when I picked him up in a spot start in my most recent cup full matchup against Anthony in the chat, who's been referenced a couple of times. It was a tough matchup, but Latestu helped put me over the top. I don't know how, like, Elon, you'd have to give me some examples. Like, I guess I'd prefer him to Spooner. I'd probably prefer him to Manta. As long as he's on that top power play with Connor McDavid, I consider him one of the better depth ads that we've discussed this week. How about that? That's I think that sounds great. It means like it sounds like you're saying he's probably one of the top free agents in a lot of leagues and you have him above Pat Maroon as well. That's a tougher one. I feel like Pat Maroon is going to be in a better position for the majority of the season. So maybe I would still prefer Patrick Maroon, especially in a hits league. Like I said, he's been really good at driving play, making his line mates better, looking good on his own merits. He's one of the few Oilers who looks just as good away from McDavid, or maybe not just as good, but still decent away from McDavid compared to how he looks with McDavid. I guess, I don't know. I'm going to hedge on that. I don't know. Maroon will test you. I'll go Maroon. I'm surprised, actually. I probably would just go Ryan Spooner right now, being on the top power play in Boston. So I'm going to go completely off course from what you're going with. All right, let's go to another player on cold streaks. We actually have a couple of Montreal Canadiens that have been surprisingly quiet recently. And these are guys we've been talking about for how well they've been doing all season. And no, I'm not going to bring up Brandon Gallagher again. I know I want to, and I want to try to get you to tell me that he's going to be good. But all right, I'll stop bringing him up. I'm going to bring up bigger names. 
Radulov, pointless in his last six games. He had a goal and assist in the route of Colorado, but was also pointless in the two games before that. So it's been a very long cold stretch for Radulov. I guess Phil Dano isn't the line mate that Galchenyuk was for him, along with Pacioretty. Should Radulov owners be worried? Galchenyuk will likely still be out for all of January. Then the other guy in Montreal, Shea Weber. He only has one assist in his last 12 games played. And actually, the one game where he got the assist is the one game where Brian and I benched him in our joint league, and we literally lost by the value of an assist. So that's a bummer. But yeah, Shea Weber and Radulov both doing pretty much nothing lately. Like Weber, he had 18 points in 22 games before this stretch of only one assist in 12 games played. So it's been like two completely opposite stretches for him. He's either the best in the league or he's doing nothing. Is the answer to what has happened to both of these guys simply that Galchenyuk and Deharnay got injured? Or is there something more going on? I don't think there's any more going on. There's no really alarming trends over the last 10 games. I was looking at their rolling averages for shots for scoring chances for shooting percentage. And, you know, there are a few like little expected dips, but nothing drastic enough to suggest that this is going to be the new normal, even with Galchenyuk out. Obviously, scoring is going to be a little more difficult with a lot fewer options down the middle. But something else has also been happening worth noting. The Habs power play scoring has slowed down a little bit, and I think that's hurt them. Only three power play goals in their last nine games, six power play goals in their last 13 or 14. And that is where Radulov and Weber can help make up for any shortcomings at even strength, and it's just not happening lately. I still think they're both going to be okay in the long run. I know it's hard to not get too upset because I own Radulov in one league and Weber in two others, but I'm just going to stay the course and think that everything is going to be more or less okay. Not as good as if Galchenyuk was there, but it's still going to be okay until he gets back. Yeah, and then you have him for your fantasy hockey playoffs, and hopefully Galchenyuk will be back by then. Like He probably will be, and then hopefully everything will get back to how it was during that glorious start. Some people in the Facebook group and also here, Anthony, saying in the chat that maybe some people have figured out Weber and his role on the Montreal power play. Like Teams have adapted to playing against how Weber is used on the power play, and that's been a cause of him slowing down in Montreal, not scoring as many power play goals. Do you think there's any merit to that assessment? That's something I'm going to probably have to watch a few Habs games in the near future to get a better handle on. Looking at the rolling averages that I was talking about, I looked at them at even strength and on the power play. And again, I didn't see any significant dips or anything so worrying that I think something that was really working before isn't going to work in the future. They were benefiting from some fairly high shooting percentages at one point. And so maybe that's just regression playing itself out. But I don't subscribe to the theory. Maybe other teams are adjusting, sure. But I still think Weber is good for 50-plus points and Radulov could still manage a 60-point pace through the rest of the year. Okay, and one more cold streak I want to get to before we end the show on some players on hot streaks. I have to eat some crow right now and admit that I think you were right, Brian, about Jack Eichel. And I was being a bit of a dummy when I got overly excited about his four points in his first two games after coming back from injury. After he got those four points in two games, he only has a one-assist game and a two-goal and one-assist game in 10 games, and then eight pointless games, including the last five. So, you know, you have two good games and eight nothing games in the last 10 for Jack Eichel, which is not what I expected when he came back. I thought he was going to rejuvenate the rest of the Sabres and be a really dynamic player himself. So maybe he's not the 70-point pace player I was expecting, maybe closer to 60, like you were saying, or oh, hopefully not, but maybe less. I don't know. But funny enough, the guys I was expecting Eichel to prop up 
they still have been pretty good. Like Ristolainen has 14 points in his last 13 games. So you couldn't have expected much more from him. And if you held on to him, and I mean, he was good all year and you thought he was going to do better with Eichel back. And he has been, even though Eichel hasn't been cashing in on those points. I feel like Ryan O'Reilly is like really the top center on Buffalo. Like he's been really good himself and he's obviously driving a lot of play, but also Sam Reinhardt, he has 10 points in his last 13 playing on the O'Reilly line, by the way. He started with Jack Eichel, but he moved to play with O'Reilly. Evander Kane, nine points in his last 13, including six goals and 45 shots, which is exactly what you expected from Evander Kane. A whole bunch of shots and a few of them going in, which you weren't getting when he first came back from his injury. And I feel kind of dumb for having dropped him at one point when he was, you know, not doing anything. Kyle Poso has 10 points in his last 13, O'Reilly nine. So all these other guys, aside from Jack Eichel, are putting up points. What direction do you see all these guys going moving forward, including Jack Eichel. It is funny that all these guys who we thought Jack Eichel was going to come back and help are helping themselves, it seems like, while Jack Eichel still struggles, except I don't think that's exactly what's happening. I think Jack Eichel has brought some needed depth to that top six, and so we're seeing things click a little better because he's in the lineup, even if he isn't getting points. His IPB is down a little bit. He's only in on 57% of all goals scored while he's on the ice so far this year, when last year he was in on almost 75% of all the goals. So maybe his true IPP number is going to end up somewhere in the middle. We haven't seen enough from him to imagine, but a high-end forward could be at 65, 70. His shooting percentage is actually better than it should be. His even strength shooting is at is over 10%, and his on-ice shooting percentage is near 9%. Those numbers both look high to me, so it's almost like we should be expecting some regression there. I don't know. I think all that stuff is probably going to be a wash and Jack Eichel is going to be okay. This isn't symptomatic of anything in the future. I'm glad you'll acknowledge that Jack Eichel isn't a 70, 75 point player because he came back from injury and was on fire in the first couple games. He's still, in my mind, better than a 60 point player or a 60 plus point player. I think that's something you can count on. If not this year, at least he'll get close to that and then surpass it in future years. And Elon, if it makes you feel any better... You dropped Kane and I dropped Reinhardt. So I lost out on all those wonderful points. And somebody else in the Sweden division of the Cupful is getting them. After I rode with Reinhardt for so long, just waiting for everything to even out, I just couldn't hang on to him long enough. Fantasy hockey can be very frustrating sometimes. I feel like you have to almost clear your memory after you drop someone and try not to remember all of the guys that you've dropped along the way, especially if you've made some mistakes. And yeah, I was kind of playing devil's advocate. I don't think that Jack Eichel is like a bust or anything. I agree with you. I think he's still really good. Like Anthony's saying in the chat, he has 23 shots in his last five games. So not getting maybe the bounces, even though you say he has a high shooting percentage overall, but obviously not lately with no points in his last stretch of games. I think he'll be fine. But yeah, not the 70-point guy that maybe I was hoping for. Okay, let's end the show with some hot streaks. I was going to start with Columbus. We already covered them. So let's go to the other team on a huge winning streak, which is Minnesota. They have now won 10 in a row. And we already covered a few of their players last week. But I will mention, so Parisi has been out with an illness the past couple of games, which allowed Jason Zucker to join the fun in the top six. And he had one goal and one assist against Montreal on Thursday. And then one goal and two assists in the big 7-4 win against the Rangers on Thursday. So all of a sudden, I've been seeing him getting added by a ton of people in a ton of leagues, which makes sense when you have such a hot two games. He's up to 22 points in 33 games on the season now. And he's a guy who had stretches of relevance last year. So obviously who knows what's going to happen when Parisi comes back. But I wonder if Jason Zucker has earned a spot in the top six. And I wonder if he's someone people should be looking to add. You know, if we add him to the conversation of the Latestus and the Spooners and all of that, I'd be curious to know your thoughts on where Zucker fits in there. Well, first, I'd like to get an update on how Zach Parisi is feeling. Elon, I have my IR filled in three different leagues, and I'm just waiting to make moves, and I can't do anything because I have no idea how long any of these guys are going to be out for. 
I guess that's a side rant. Jason Zucker, we know that the Minnesota top six is always fluid and moving and it's kind of can be a top nine as well. There's a lot of players who can succeed in a lot of different places. Jason Zucker is somebody who's as long as he's up there for Parisi, that's good news for me. He had a season high six shots on goal in that Montreal game. He followed that up with just two shots on goal against New York. But that's sort of what he does. When he gets an opportunity, he can fire a ton of shots on net and occasionally score on them. I don't know if you remember, Elon, two years ago, he had 21 goals in 51 games. And we were lauding him because 20 of those goals came at even strength. Only one of them was on the power play. His goals per 60 was off the charts. And he does all this with not a lot of ice time too. So he maintains pretty good rate sets. And when he gets more ice, he's able to put more shots on net and get a couple more goals. I don't see him being in a big time scoring role like this for a very long time though. And that's why I wouldn't get overly excited about him. Good for as long as Prezi's out. Yeah, which might not even be one more game, right? It was an illness that they say he was out for. So maybe he'll be back after the break. One guy who I just want to bring up again, I guess we've done it a couple times this season, but Eric Stahl, he's up to 28 points in 33 games on the season, which is a 70-point pace. Charlie Coyle actually right behind him with 27 points. But I want to focus on Stahl. Like, is he back to being that guy? Like, it's not too long ago. I guess maybe it's like three years ago now. In 2012-2013, Eric Stahl had 53 points in 48 games, which is a similar pace. And he had 70 points in a full season before that. Was it just that Carolina wasn't a good place for him? And I guess the Rangers, when he went there, obviously forget about that. He only had six points in 20 games when he got traded to the Rangers. But like Eric Stahl's clearly having a resurgence. Is this sustainable? Like, is he just the good Eric Stahl that we remember? Or has he just been riding unsustainable numbers at this point? Let's stop to appreciate the streak that he's on right now. He's on a seven-game point streak. He has at least a point in 12 of his last 15 games played. And only recently did the power play points start coming. So he's doing a lot of that at even strength. He's getting at least a couple of shots on goal each game, sometimes three, sometimes four, and a few multi-point efforts too in the last couple of weeks. So really good things happening for Eric Stahl all season long. Elon, you asked about Carolina. Carolina is just not a place where scoring happens. Carolina is where scoring goes to die. Yeah, and that's what you used to say about Minnesota all the time. Well, sort of. It was a different sort of cap. Minnesota, we knew all the time that the way they built their lineup lended itself to a more defensive-minded system where it's a scoring by committee, 50-55 points for a few of them. Parisi would stand out on top. In Carolina, it was like, well, they have a new coach, and they figured out their defense, and they have some guys on offense who can score, but they never, ever seem to get a chance to do anything. And New York didn't offer Eric Stahl that opportunity either. We talked at length last year about how it was just the wrong place for him to end up. They did not appreciate him. They wanted to use him as a really depth third line center. And I guess seeing how they manage their lineup this year, we have a little bit more insight into exactly what they had planned for him. But clearly he's capable of more than that with the season he's having so far. His personal shooting percentage is a little high. It's the highest it's been since the lockout shortened season back in 2012-13 and really the third highest he's had in the last 10 years. So that tells you that some regression should be coming there. On ice shooting percentage is a little high as well, but he is on a more involved and interesting power play, which helps. He has seven power play points already. He had seven points all of last year between Carolina and New York. So that's a good sign for him. And I like the way he's playing a lot. We, we liked him as a comeback candidate. I'm glad it's coming to fruition. I think he deserved to have at least one more good year. So it's good to see him getting it so far. I think it's reasonably sustainable. Not 28 points in 33 games, but I could see him keeping this up enough to break 60 points. Oh, that's still so hard to say about a Minnesota player, but 
I just, I want it for him. I want it to happen. I mean, right now he's on a 70 point pace, like I said. So if he only puts up like a 50 point pace moving forward, you know, he should be able to crack 60 points. So it's definitely possible unless he totally flames out. And you know, when you're on the top line and top power play on a team that's winning all the time, you're going to see some points. And it's really nice to see that Stahl can even get points when Parisi is injured. Though at the same time, I think that you're right that you could probably sell high on him if you can. If someone believes that he's a 70-point guy, if they think that they're trading for the Eric Stahl from five years ago, maybe you can swap him for like a 70-point guy because I see him more as a 60-point guy going forward. But I definitely think he's going to hit that 60 points. Also, Matt Dumba, since we're on Minnesota, he's found his way back on Power Play 1, bumping Spurgeon. I was excited about Spurgeon for a while and saying Dumba was kind of a snoozer off that top Power Play. He's back now. So maybe it's time to add him back if he was dropped. Like we haven't talked about many defensemen this week, but recently we've talked about potential ads like Jake Gardner and Petrie and Brody. So I'd be curious to know if you think Matt Dumba is worth being in the conversation now again with these types of guys. I don't know. He's someone who's had enough ups and downs and ebbs and flows in hype that I've started to sort of not pay attention to whenever good things are happening with him. But this seems sustained long enough or at least to be somewhat interesting. Like if you're in a league where like Anton Strawman is owned and Matt Dumba isn't, then Matt Dumba is definitely someone you should have on your roster. I think he's also a good guy to grab in for a spot start for as long as he's doing what he's doing now getting two shots a game for a defenseman isn't a bad gig and also some power play time as well I'm warming up to him for the first time in a while especially you know I, I guess as Ryan Suter's ice time decreases which it hasn't really yet in a significant way but it will he's getting older and Matt Dumba is going to be groomed to be that next top guy although there's a lot of there's Jared Spurgeon Scantella Brodeen there's enough guys in Minnesota that it can be a defense by committee but I suppose Dumba is the one after Ryan Suter who stands out the most. You always ask me about Jared Spurgeon too. I'm a little more hopeful about Dumba if he gets a sustained look in the right situations. Yeah, I like Spurgeon. Like he always seems like a decent fantasy ad and I was really excited about him being on the top power play. I'm more down on him now. I own him in the cupful, but he's sort of been my cycle guy, especially with Chris Letang out. So I'll probably hold on to him at least for a couple of more games. Maybe when Letang is back, I'll have to let him go unless he can get back on the top power play. He's not sustainably blocking. Like that was the one thing about Spurgeon that he used to get a lot of blocks. Doesn't seem to be doing it as much as the other. That's been happening a lot with a few defensemen. Like, you know, John Carlson comes to mind. Guys who you expected to give you a lot of blocks just aren't doing it. I wonder if the game has changed a bit for these blockers even chris russell he i think is leading the league in blocks or is up there but he hasn't been getting like consistent five six blocks per game like he was getting a couple seasons ago so it's something interesting to look into but okay let's end the show brian with a couple of goalies who we have to mention we have to go to calgary and bring up brian elliott again so if you remember last week i mentioned that chad johnson had had three straight bad games and maybe we should expect that brian elliott will get another chance and they have that good game against arizona on monday so that might be a good start to grab elliott for as a spot start and see what happens and like basically it was the best case scenario for anyone who added brian elliott he got the start against arizona he stopped 25 of 27 shots for a 4-2 win then chad johnson got the tuesday start against san jose which is a much harder matchup and he again led in four goals took a 4-2 loss so of course calgary went back to elliott on friday versus vancouver and he got a super easy game they got a 4-1 win and he only saw 14 shots against so now all of a sudden chad johnson is riding four bad games in a row while brian elliott has two wins in a row with good save percentages so i'd imagine elliott's gonna get the start against colorado tomorrow which is another easy game and then they play Anaheim on Thursday and Arizona Saturday. So it seems like Brian Elliott is a good guy to own right now as he might get a couple of these easier games. 
I wonder if we're witnessing Elliot stealing the job back right now, or is this just kind of him getting lucky, getting easy games, while Chad Johnson gets all of the tougher assignments like San Jose, and as soon as the matchups start evening out, then we'll start to realize that Chad Johnson is still the better goalie. You have every Brian Elliott owner knocking on wood right now after saying that Colorado is going to be an easy game. It should be. They're a mess offensively. But we'll see what happens when they play Calgary, who are not the soundest team in any way. And Brian Elliott still not assuredly a good goalie outside of St. Louis. But yes, there are some signs of life. You mentioned his two wins recently. Go back to his last start before that. It was a win. He stopped 25 of 27, albeit against the New York Islanders, but he had a 926 save percentage that game, 923 in a short relief appearance against Tampa, and then a 926 and a 929. Those are all good numbers to have in your game log. Meanwhile, you have, like you said, Chad Johnson, whose numbers in his game log have not been so good. I don't know. I'm still really trying to figure out if Brian Elliott can be a good goalie without Ken Hitchcock as a coach, without as deep a decor as St. Louis had. I don't want to get ahead of myself. I was way off about Chad Johnson, who sustained himself. I actually own the tandem now in one of my leagues, the league where I'm against you. So I don't know how this is all going to play out. I think, honestly, it's like we're starting from scratch. Both goalies have an equal opportunity of getting the number one job. We'll see where each one goes in the next, say, three starts each, and then reassess. I feel like this is going to be a topic for the next couple weeks. Yeah, probably. But of course, people have to make decisions now. Like if Elliot is a free agent in your league, this might be your last chance to get him before if he does go on a nice run and steals that starter job and does well, he's going to get added. So I'm curious, should people be adding Elliot ASAP? And also people who have Chad Johnson that maybe see other tempting goalies out there, or maybe they don't even need a fourth goalie. Like Brian, we have four goalies right now in our league that we're in together. And I had a Chad Johnson for a spot start at one point and then obviously couldn't drop him because he was doing so well. At some point, do Chad Johnson owners... Like, I'm just curious. Kind of like my question before about the guys like Alex Steen and how long do you wait on them? I'm curious to know, like, how long do you wait before you rush to grab Brian Elliott? And how long do you hold on to someone like Chad Johnson if he keeps letting in four goals every game? Well, goalies are a super context-dependent thing, right? It depends on what other goalie options are out there, how important goalie categories are for you. I can tell you in the league where I own Chad Johnson, I went and got Brian Elliott... Mind you, in that league, my other goalies are Marc-Andre Fleury and Semyon Varlamov. So I'm desperate to have an actual goalie on my team. So that made it even more necessary for me to get Elliot to cuff Calgary and make sure I got those starts. That's essentially the only reason why. It's not because I'm confident he's going to start rattling off great start after great start. I just needed to protect myself, have an insurance option. So maybe he serves that for you or you're desperate in a similar way to me and you don't have Chad Johnson, but you have only one goalie who's getting starts for your team and you need more, in that case, Brian Elliott could be worth an ad. Yeah, like I added him in the couple as my third goalie behind Gibson and Rask. And like, if he could turn out to be a solid third goalie on my team as a starting goalie who gets decent numbers, I'll be happy, but I'm not banking on it. I would say my advice would be if Elliot's available, it might be worth it to drop at least a forward or, you know, your bottom defenseman or whatever to have dibs on him and see how he does over the next couple of weeks. If you had Chad Johnson, I think you should still wait. Like I know it doesn't look good with Elliot doing well recently and him doing bad recently, but there is something to the fact that Elliot's gotten the easy games and Johnson's gotten the hard game so I would like to see a few more games for each against similar competition I'm sure the coach of Calgary feels the same way okay Brian you also mentioned to me that you wanted me to bring up Matthew Kachuk this week Cam brought him up in our bonus episode 
earlier this week, and I was surprised that he's up to 19 points in 32 games on the season. This has been a quietly successful year for Matthew Kachuk. He's actually on a three-game point streak right now. So I'm wondering if people should be looking to add him in one-year leagues, you know, throw him into the conversation with the Ryan Spooners. Maybe Kachuk is an available free agent for you as well. And actually, you had Latestu and Pat Maroon ahead of Spooner. So now let's throw Matthew Kachuk into that conversation. He's been playing with Backlund and Froelich, and he's off the top power play, so it's hard for me to get too excited about him. But at the same time, he's on like a 50-point pace and on a little run right now. Yeah, I actually asked you to bring him up right before I listened to your interview with Cam. So you guys took care of it. I think I just wanted to make the point that he's doing better than you think. We talked about all these depth guys in this episode. He probably stands above them. He stands above Anthony Mantha to me. He stands above Ryan Spooner. He's up above a half point per game pace. He had five shots in his most recent game albeit against Vancouver, but it still counts. And they're in the same division, so they're going to play each other a bunch this year. Matthew Kachuk, I think I'm just going to phrase it that way. Doing better than you think, or doing better than you realize, perhaps. Yeah, well, not anymore after two straight podcasts talking about him. I think if I had to pick a guy on Calgary who's not Goudreau or Monaghan, I might actually take Christopher Stieg, who's been hot and cold all year, but he's the one on the top power play. And of the guys we've talked about this week, i take Ryan Spooner. Again, like I said, I like the top power play. I don't know. I just feel like it's a better chance to score. If, you know, all else equal, we think these guys are pretty similar. Give me the guy on the top power play. Bonus question, I guess, about Calgary. We got this question on Facebook, and I'm curious to know, uh, how you would answer it because someone asked how would you rank Giordano Hamilton and Brody it's very concerning for Giordano owners that he hasn't been getting power play time lately like I mentioned recently TJ Brody has been on the top power play but I know you said that you don't think Brody is someone you could rely on but I'm even curious just Giordano and Hamilton like Giordano I know that we're supposed to expect him to bounce back and do well like he did last year But at the same time, like Dougie Hamilton is really showing himself to be a really solid player, taking so many shots on goal, so many more than Giordano. I guess Giordano gets more blocks and and hits if your league counts that. But offensively, it has Dougie Hamilton usurped Giordano. And then also is Brody in the conversation as he's sticking on the top power play? Brody is not in the conversation. So I'll just knock him out right off the top. Hamilton's got the shots. Giordano's got the blocks with upside for shots. His shot rates are definitely down so far this year. I'm still hoping, holding out hope that they'll recover. I'm not 100% sure that they will. So if you want to value shots on goal, Hamilton could be the better guy for you and could put up similar offensive numbers as he did for the last several months of last year. But Giordano, I still think he has the better upside and he'll get you some crazy blocks some nights and he can do not as well as Hamilton in shots on goal, but close enough that it doesn't matter because he makes up for it in the points and the blocks categories. Yeah, well, just to give the updated rankings in terms of straight up points, Dougie Hamilton has 20 points in 36 games, Giordano with 14. So right now, Dougie doesn't only give the shots, but he's also giving the points. He has, by the way, 104 shots versus Giordano 73. So right now... I guess, of course, like you said, like with hits and blocks. Actually, no, Dougie Hamilton has more hits than Giordano. So it's really only the blocks that Giordano is beating Dougie Hamilton in now. So it's hard not to want Dougie Hamilton. And then, you know, I agree with you that Brody, even on the top power play, I don't expect too much from him. But I do like him as a cycle guy right now while he's on the top power play with Goudreau and Monaghan and Christopher Stieg, like I said, and I guess Troy Brower to complete the set. But Dougie Hamilton also getting power play time. And I don't know, I'm starting to think maybe it's Hamilton time. If you want a defenseman on Calgary, I might disagree with you. Okay. Wait, hang on. I just want to butt in here because I've been one of the huge boosters of Dougie Hamilton over the last couple of years. And I don't want to be suddenly left out in the cold because I suddenly ranked Giordano ahead of him. I still 
love Dougie Hamilton. I think he can outperform Giordano. It's just a matter of who's going to get the most opportunity. And my guess is that it's going to be Giordano for at least the rest of this year. I think the torch needs to be passed to Hamilton. It's only a matter of time before it does. But that's essentially making my mind up about this decision. Whether Hamilton can be Giordano in the future, I think he can. I think he can put up more shots. I think he can get some pretty fantastic point totals. Anyway, I think I've made my point. I love Dougie Hamilton. I just want to make that clear. Okay, it's good. Everyone, note it. Mark it down. December 26th, Boxing Day 2016. Brian loves Dougie Hamilton. Okay, let's end the show. I was actually wanting to bring up one more goalie. We were just talking about Elliot and Johnson and that whole business. One place where there's absolutely no controversy in terms of who's the number one goalie is in Toronto. Frederick Anderson. Man, he's doing really well. We had a surprisingly tough question on our Facebook group recently. Someone asked Anderson versus Corey Schneider. And obviously the gut reaction to me, of course, Corey Schneider next. Like, you know, I got like five more questions to answer. I don't have time to even look this up. But you look up their numbers and obviously both are trending in opposite directions right now. Anderson has had quality starts in six of his last seven up to a 923 save percentage, even after that horrible start to the season. Like keep in mind how bad Frederick Anderson was at the start of the year. He was like letting in four or five goals a game, it seemed. And now he's up to a 923 so a huge bounce back meanwhile Corey Schneider still struggling but at the same time he's Corey Schneider like he's our reliable guy but you know games keep happening and he keeps on blowing it for his owners Brian at this point who would you rather have for the rest of the season this is a really tough question I agree that it seemed really simple at first it's like oh hold on for Schneider everything's going to be okay with him but Frederick Anderson you can't ignore how well he's been doing since November 1st He's a 938 goalie, which is just out of this world. Plus, he's got a contract that makes it unlikely for him to be swapped out for another goalie in the near future. If I had to choose right now, I'd want to say Schneider, but I really feel pulled by Anderson. He's on a better team that's on the upswing, especially if you're looking into the future, if you're in a keeper setup. Anderson is a couple years younger than Schneider, and the Leafs have more pieces in place to be a competitive team sooner, while the Devils, I think, management has the right idea and knows how to build a competitive team but I think there's still a few significant pieces away from being there so if I'm looking for wins I think Anderson has the edge if I'm looking for saves I think Anderson and Schneider are about equal if I'm looking at save percentage ah it's so hard with how well Anderson's been playing I think I still need to give the edge to Schneider I've got to cut him a little more slack than just saying, well, Frederick Anderson's been better for the last 15, 20 games or so. Schneider's been so good for the last few years. Something's changed in New Jersey with their defense. Well, it's the departure of Adam Larson, and we've talked about it on the show in the last couple weeks about how I think Schneider's struggles are linked to a New Jersey defense core that is a little thin and a little confused and isn't exactly sure what to do without one of their anchors this year. If they can recover in time, Corey Schneider's save percentage has to be better than Frederick Anderson, who I still expect to be about a league average goalie. It's a bonus for the Leafs if he's any better than that. Okay, well, we'll have to see at the end of the season if you're going to reassess that because Frederick Anderson, this is his first time having the starting gig role, like for sure. And maybe he's showing that, you know, and he had that bad start to the season, but maybe he's the type of goalie like Steve Mason and you just haven't had the opportunity to see it yet. That if he gets a number of starts in a row, maybe he can't get on a roll. We just don't know. He's never had this role. He was always in tandems in Anaheim with Gibson or with, I think, someone else before. I don't even recall. This is a really tough one for me. I'm also going to say Schneider for now, but I think it's like very close to 50-50. I feel like if you have Frederick Anderson and the Schneider owner 
wants to make a swap with you, I think you could be like, give me more, like give me a sweetener at this point, just because of how bad Schneider has been doing. So that makes it a little easier if you get Schneider and maybe a defense upgrade for Anderson, that might make it more worthwhile to take that risk for the higher upside. Brian, that's all I've got for this week's show. Do you have any last players you wanted to bring up before we call it a night? No, I told you about all of them before the show. All right, perfect. So thank you everyone for joining us live on your holiday weekend or long weekend or whatever you want to call it. This has been a lot of fun. We really appreciate you joining us. And also for everyone listening, if you liked the show, tweet at us. Let us know. We'd like some end of the year feedback. So at Keeping Carlson, let us know what you like, what you don't like. We're always looking to improve the format and keep this the best fantasy hockey podcast out there. Hosted by two guys on Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. Of course, I don't want to be too braggy. Also, if you would be so kind as to go on iTunes, give us a five-star review. That would be a very nice holiday present for us. Hey, you could even be extra generous. Go to keepingcarlson.com slash patron and consider becoming a patron of Keeping Carlson. For only $5 a month, you really help out the show. And we give you some perks like joining the Keeping Carlson patron-only Facebook group, which we brought up a bunch of times throughout the show. Not because I'm trying to promote it, but just because that's a big part of my life is on this Facebook group, talking to all the amazing patrons. Also, we do a patron cast once a month where the patrons basically decide what we're going to talk about. They ask us questions and we just keep going all the way until we've answered all of their questions. And we actually have a patron cast this Wednesday in two days. We're going to be having this month's patron cast. So that's going to be a lot of fun. And it's not too late for you to become a patron and join in on that fun. So again, keepingcarlson.com slash patron. But with that, let's cue the outro music. Before we do Elon's scheduling note, there will be no episode this upcoming Sunday. Okay, I've cut the music. That's true. I should mention some scheduling notes. Like I said, PatreonCast is on Wednesday for the patrons. No show next week. Brian and I are taking a bit of a vacation and then we'll be back with our regularly scheduled episodes every Sunday, starting on January 8th. January 8th. So there it is. You go to keepingcarlson.com slash live on January 8th at 8 p.m. EST to join us for our next regular episode. But with that, let's once again cue the outro music. And Brian, why don't you go ahead and read us the credits? This episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast was presented by Dauber Hockey and supported by our patrons. It was researched with help from Dauber Hockey, Dauber Prospects, Frozen Pool, Hockey, Hockey Analysis, Hockey Reference, Hockey Database, Elite Prospects, CopperInBlue.com, Roto World, and Fantrax. Great job as always, Brian. Good luck to all of you in 2017. Happy New Year. And we'll talk to you all, well, the patrons, in a couple days, and the rest of you in a couple weeks. Until then, keep on keeping Carlson, and Happy New Year, everybody.